0: So we are in a series of messages called King and Kingdom. Now if you're unfamiliar uh, with, church, with church history, this time of the year, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, the church has historically celebrated a season called Advent. Now Advent uh, means simply arrival or coming, and, and basically the way that we look at Advent as a church is like this. Uh, typically when we think about Christmas, we think about the perspective of only looking back at Jesus' birth. But I've challenged our church last week to think about uh, Advent really as a journey. Now, when you see someone with a suitcase, you've got something in your mind about them. And that thought probably goes something like this, whether you see them in an airport, uh, walking down the street, or maybe coming into your home, is they are not yet where they're going. They're not where they're going yet. That's why they've got a suitcase. They're pilgrims. They're sojourners. I think we as the church ought to see ourselves that same way. So we've got all of God's presence with us in Christ because Jesus has come for the first time. And his presence, so his presence has been inaugurated when Jesus came for the first time. But the other side of the story is Jesus is coming again. So we're caught in the middle of this season between the already of having Jesus's presence and the not yet of not yet having his presence fully. And so we live in that tension now as we walk out our day-to-day life and we long for more of God's presence to come into our lives. And that's really what Advent is all about. It's about this past, present, and future context of seeing the kingdom of God. So last week, we looked at king and kingdom for the first week, and we said that Jesus is a better king. And we, we dipped back into the Old Testament, and we, and we saw how the Israelites, God's chosen people, uh, re- rejected him as a king over them, and they wanted an earthly king. And we saw how that played out, and how it didn't play out so well. And how Jesus came as a better king. So much more than they could have ever imagined. This week we're looking more into uh, what it looks like to dwell in his kingdom. And our theme for Advent this week is joy. I want to, I want you to think about the most memorable birthday that you've ever had in your life. The most memorable birthday. Maybe it was last year or maybe it was when you were five or six. I can think about the most memorable birthday that I had. Uh, And and the first thing you gotta know about my birthday is this it's in the summer. And you'll notice that I say it with a little bit of disdain. Because when you have a summer birthday and you're a student going through school, you get to celebrate your friend's birthday all year long, right? I mean, there's the, I mean, you got the whole deal. You got the juice boxes, you got the cake, you got the song. It's a beautiful thing. It's a whole day dedicated to that kid in your class. But if you have a summer birthday, they do this little thing at the end of the year that they think is kind of nice, but it really frustrates you. On the last day of school, all the moms, and some of you are laughing, you have a summer birthday, all the moms bring in some cupcakes and some juice boxes, and you celebrate all ten of your birthdays on one day, right? And it's kind of this frustrating kind of a thing. But there was this one birthday that I remember that is very memorable. I was playing t-ball, I was turning six years old, had a game day, and my parents had surprised me with the birthday party. Now I was at the game plan, I I get home and there is, my entire yard is full of cars. Now I think they were throwing a party too but they just kinda bunched it in with my birthday but that's another story. So I get out of the car, I get out of the car and I'm so excited because my friends are at the house. And so I just start trucking it down uh, the side, through the front yard, down the side yard into the backyard, we have like a two acre yard and I see all of my friends out there. Well, you know, just, you know, Kind of ironically enough, our neighbor just happened to let their little terror of a dog out at the same time that I'm running down the side yard. And all of a sudden, that dog sees a kid running. So what's the dog do? He comes and embraces my leg with such a strong touch. And it starts to draw blood out of my leg. So here I am, lying in my baseball uniform, bloody, looking up at all of my friends, looking at, down at me like this. And I've got to go to the emergency room so that I can see if I've got rabies or not, right? Right. So it was a memorable birthday for all the wrong reasons. And as memorable as a birthday that your most memorable birthday might be, there's never been a more memorable birth in all of the world than the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into the historicity of the actual day that Jesus was born, because most of us know that it probably wasn't December 25th. But that's, that's beside the point. What's important is that Jesus came. It doesn't really matter what day it was. We celebrated on December 25th. That's great. But what's important is that Jesus came. And the story of Jesus' birth, as I've discovered once again this year, as I looked at these Advent texts, is that it's a story full of paradoxes. A paradox meaning a, a logically unacceptable or seemingly contradictory thing happening. Jesus coming to earth. And here's what I've realized about that. Grace. Is paradoxical. And we're going to dive into Luke chapter 2 if you've got your Bible. But before that, uh, I would love uh, to read a quote to you from, uh, from James Montgomery Boyce. And as I get into that, I just want you to know this. My entire aim for you today is that you would be freshly blown away by the grace of God. The more that I see what grace actually is, the more that it blows me away that it's actually true for us. And we become, we become in this habit of just saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I've, I've got the grace of God, that's a cool thing. And we act like it's just part of everyday ordinary conversation. It's an amazing reality, the fact that we are not guilty of our sin, that our, that our, identity, uh, our identity as sinners is, is, is no, long, no longer held against us because of the work of Christ. That our security in God is not dependent on my performance as a Christian. That's an amazing reality. And it's all because God so loved the cosmos, the world, that he sent Jesus, his son. And this is what James Montgomery Boyce says here. Jesus endured a human birth to give us a new spiritual birth. He occupied a stable that we might occupy a mansion. He had an earthly mother so that we might have a heavenly father. He became subject So that we might be free. He left his glory to give us glory. He was poor that we might be rich. He was welcomed by shepherds at his birth, whereas at our birth, we're welcomed by angels. He was hunted by Herod that we might be delivered from the grasp of Satan. That is the great paradox of the Christmas story. And get this it is that which makes it irresistibly attractive. It is the reversal of roles at God's cost for our benefit. So let's stand and we're going to read Luke chapter 2 verses 18 through 20 as we look at this good news of great joy this morning. Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 8. And in that same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was With the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went without haste with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Father, Mary treasured up these things in her heart because these things that are worthy, these are things that are worthy of treasuring. Um, God, would you give us a fresh glimpse this morning of the good news that brings great joy to our hearts? And Father, would you teach our hearts to settle for nothing less than the joy that comes with knowing your son Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the night that Jesus was born, there were shepherds watching in the field. And we know that shepherds were lowly, socially marginalized people. They were kind of the bottom of the bottom. And, and their profession um, was so unattractive that it actually made them unclean from worshiping in the temple. They couldn't worship because of their profession for weeks on end. And I think it's no coincidence that this good news first comes to shepherds. Think about all the times we see shepherds throughout the Old Testament. When God appeared in the burning bush to call a leader to bring forth the Exodus, the people of Israel. Do you know who he called? He chose a man living in exile in the Midianite desert who was tending sheep. His name? Moses. Moses. When Israel became a nation, we looked at this last week, there came a time when a a shepherd boy, David, son of Jesse, was anointed as king. And even if we go to the age of the prophets, we find Amos, not a man of great stature, but a shepherd whom God called into service for himself. So, my question is this could it be possible that the shepherds, that the sheep that these men cared for, would someday be the lambs? That would be offered in sacrifice in the temple? I think so. I think absolutely so. And it's obviously pointing uh, to the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world that we read about in John. Even in John 10, we see Jesus identify himself as what? The great shepherd. The great shepherd. And he says that he lays down his life for the sheep. He's the shepherd that stays with his flock when the wolves are coming to destroy. He doesn't leave them. And church, we, we are the sheep. We are the sheep that the good shepherd leads. And I find it comforting because we know <clears throat> the depth of our unloveliness. And I think the shepherds knew the depth of their unloveliness. I think they, they understood what it meant to be ignored, to be overlooked, to be outcast of society. So why in the world... Would the good news of great joy that is the gospel of Jesus come to these lowly men? I think there's something significant there. When you think about about why God comes to them, I think it's because, I think there's lots of foreshadowing that's going on throughout the, the Old Testament, but I also think that there's a posture that a shepherd had to have to be able to do his vocation. A posture of knowing that you don't have it all together, Maybe you didn't have the honor roll grade, so you couldn't get into the college you wanted to go to, and so you kind of had to take up the family profession, or maybe just take whatever you could get. These men knew that they had a need. They were faithful men. They did their job well, but they knew that they had a need. There was a neediness there that I think is absolutely uh, crucial for us, church, to understand. Because there's a, there's a, a, a neediness of grace that precedes a receiving of grace for us. If we don't think that we need God's grace, we cannot receive God's grace. And I think the shepherds, I think they had this in play. And it's the same theme, it's the same story that you see all over the Bible. It's the things that Jesus talks about. You think about in Matthew 6, the Beatitudes, which start the Sermon on the Mount. It starts out like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted. You think about Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind. These are all these are all socially unacceptable people. And Jesus comes to them. Jesus' mission is to come to them because they know their neediness. I think this is a theme that we see. So we see the angel of the Lord appears in verse 9. And, and what happens when an angel appears? They're kind of terrified, right? I mean, it freaks them out. There's an angel that appears over the field where they're watching the sheep. And they were probably the sheep were probably like in a cave. And they were kind of standing out in front of the cave. Um, it's a reasonable thing. It's a reasonable response. But we see that the angel that makes this announcement have good news of great joy. And there's this phrase after it, for all people. You see, this is a new gospel. This wasn't a nationalistic gospel, but rather this was a, this, the, the prerequisite for being a part of this kingdom that the angel comes to announce to the shepherds is not based on a race, it's not based on a family line, but it's based on a condition of the heart. And we read last week when we talked about the king, God was far more concerned about the condition of the heart than anything else. This is why he told David that he was a man after his own heart. That's what he's been more concerned with than anything. So the shepherds tended to have a posture that was just more accept, more open to receiving grace because they knew that they needed it. So the shepherds uh, hear this news. It's it's fantastic news. They go to Bethlehem in haste because they want to check out and see what's happened. And it's, very, it's a very detailed prophecy, right? It's a very detailed thing that they hear. And so they find Jesus uh, in a manger. And I don't know about you, but when I think about a manger, I typically think of like this little, you know, this wooden thing that's kind of crossed up like this and it's got like hay in it, but then it's got like a nice little Jesus fleece under it for him to lay in. But the manger actually probably looked a little something like this. Uh, When I was in Israel recently, uh, this was at the Tell of Dan where the tribe of Dan was. And this was an old stable for horses and and a stable would have looked like, more like this, and a manger a little bit more like that, a feeding trough that Jesus probably would have been born into. So I don't know about you, but that looks a little uh, less comfortable, right? It's a little more abrasive when it's cold outside, right? Uh, so that's probably more reasonable of what the, 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 t- the kind of trough that Jesus was actually born into. But the shepherds tell Mary and Joseph the good news of the Savior, And everyone else that they come in contact with because it's such good news because a Savior's come. A Messiah has come. There's a different story for the people that will receive him than the story that they've had. And they can't wait to hear that. And the character that probably astonishes me most about in Luke 2 is Mary. I find it interesting, you know, and, and a lot of people say that maybe Mary was the one that Luke gathered some evidence for as he wrote the Gospel of Luke. Because... He sought eyewitnesses out of all these accounts and he was a doctor and he kind of put this thing together as detailed and as accurate as he possibly could. And and there's this line in there that said, she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Because the the angel Gabriel had visited Mary before this and kind of told her what was going down. And as she's seeing it fold out, she sees the promises of God coming more and more fully uh, present every day that she's walking with him. So the shepherds and Mary that night heard the good news of the gospel, of the kingdom, and they were experiencing the joy of the kingdom. See, I I think those two kind of go hand in hand, and that's really where I want to focus our time. The good news and the great joy. The good news and the great joy. So the big idea of where we're going today, church, is this. The good news of the kingdom leads to great joy in the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom leads to great joy in the kingdom. In the kingdom, So we said the grace of God is paradoxical. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would send his only son to save people like me and you. But he did, because that's how good of a God that he is. But the way that our affections grab hold of this grace that we get in God is we experience this, this, this fruit of the Spirit, which part of that is joy. And that's where we want to focus in on today. Grace produces joy. So the question that we answer is this, is what is the good news? What is the good news of the gospel? What's the good news of grace? The gospel is the news that God comes to people who least deserve it, and he gives them the life that they could never imagine, all out of love. You read in Deuteronomy 6 and 7 that God, when he chose the Israelites, he didn't choose them because they were something beautiful to behold, but he chose them out of his great love. It always blows me away. That's the same reason why he sends Jesus. The same way we receive grace is because of his great love for us. So he absorbs this wrath (laughs) that we've earned for ourselves, this judgment that we've earned for ourselves. And it all goes and it dies on Calvary's cross. And because of that, we experience this joy in Jesus Christ. The magnificent thing about this is that it, it requires nothing of us but sin and faith that he's covered in. In fact, if you add anything to the gospel of yourself, it negates it, it taints it, it makes it impure. And this is something that I struggle with every single day because I want to add something to the gospel. I want to have a part in this. I want to have a part in my salvation. And every single one of us, if we're honest, we struggle with this. And it's the battle of sanctification, of God really doing this work and making us more into the image of Jesus. We want to add something to it. The Galatians did the same thing. This is why Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished, he's writing them a letter, and he gets into business pretty quick. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace and turning to another gospel. I'm astonished that you're turning from this. Why would you want to insert yourself into such good news? It's a gift. Enjoy it. It's the news that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Jesus is on the cross. He knows that we're all sinning. It doesn't stop him. So what would make him stop us from loving us when we have sin in our lives now? It's all a matter of grace. Grace. And I'm finding it to be more and more true that our first effort as Christians is to see ourselves as sinners. And this is why John the Baptizer, you know, we always read about him. Um, <clears throat> we always read about him in the Advent season because he prepares the way for Jesus. And as I was reflecting on this last week, the message of John the Baptist was like really bad news, right? It was like, "Hey, man, you guys are so sinful, and you've got to see that." He did a baptism of repentance so that they would see how sinful they were. Because you know what? The people would miss the coming Savior if they didn't see themselves as sinners. And this is something that you and I have to deal with every single day. Do we really see ourselves as sinners, or do we try to talk talk ourselves out of and justify the sin that we deal with every single day? There's much more comfort for the sinner that's in Jesus than for the person that thinks they have no sin, right? There's no comfort for that person. There's no joy to be had. And so when we surrender, as that song that we sing, when we surrender, that's what we're saying. God, I can't do it, I'm to the end of myself. And, and you feel like it's the worst news that you could possibly declare, but it's actually the best posture that you could ever have. When you surrender, and you say, God, I can't do it, I can't do what you've asked me to do. He says, that's why I've sent my son. That's the whole reason why Jesus had to come, because you can't save yourself. Unless we acknowledge that sin first abounds, Grace cannot abound all the more, Romans 5.20. So the shepherds were aware of their need of saving. The question to us is, are we aware? There's kind of two extremes in here. Some of us are very aware. We feel it every moment of every day. Others of us, you know, we're not really so aware of it. So we have to be confronted with the truth of the gospel, which says that all men have sinned. And so as we're confronted by that, we have one of two options. We either try to cover it up and hide it and justify it ourselves, or we surrender the person that surrenders gets to experience this great joy of the gospel that the, the angel came to declare to the shepherd. So what does, what, does, uh, what does great joy mean? I think great joy is a deep and everlasting delight that proves every other lesser delight is just sour and impalatable. When you taste it, it just seems inedible. This grace... Is the same grace that Jesus declared to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus goes through Samaria for some odd reason. It's all divine, right? And he says, you know what? We're going to stop at this well, and I'm going to talk to this woman who's getting water in the middle of the day. Because you know what? She knows she's a sinner. And, and he says, hey, can I have some water? And she says, you know, you know there's an interaction there. And Basically, Jesus says, what does he say to her? He says, how about I give you water where you'll never thirst again? That's the water of the gospel right there. That's, that's, that's how the gospel quenches our desires, is he gives us something where we don't have to come back to the same well drinking lukewarm water and sleeping with all these men, like the lady in John chapter 4 did, as she was seeking to be fulfilled, seeking to find joy. So if we're being honest, most of us in here do not experience this type of joy as often as we'd like, Right? We don't experience the joy that, that satisfies us, and that's why we kind of keep looking and we kind of keep searching. That's why we experience these emotions that are kind of out of control sometimes, and we wonder where God is in the middle of it all. In fact, I think the entire Old Testament is a journey of God's grace in the midst of the pursuit of lesser joys, right? He gives the Israelites a king. He tells them what's going to happen. He does all of these things, and he stays with them the whole time. I was reminded this week of a pursuit of lesser joys in my own family. Um, so uh, it's, let me just preface this illustration by saying this. It's never a good idea to take your kids down the toy aisle at Target. <laughs> so, Megan's like, oh, gosh, I remember this one. She was with me. And so we were, I think I think we might have just had two kids at that point. So it was like a year ago or so, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so we took our, our two oldest kids down the toy aisle at Target. And I was just like, hey, man, this will be fun. They've never been in the toy aisle before. We'll just, we'll just show them what it's like to see all the toys in the toy store. And so we're walking down the aisle, and the whole time I'm thinking, we are not buying a toy. And the whole time they're thinking, uh, we're getting every toy, right? So we're walking down the aisle, and I'm thinking this will be a great exercise in self-control. It'll be, it'll be really good for our kids. And so uh, everything was great until we tell them we were leaving, and there was no toy in the basket, and then there was a meltdown that involved us dragging both kids and stuffing them in the cart, and you know looking like really bad parents as we went out of Target in the little red cart. So, um, <clears throat> this was a scene. And a few months later, after that, Caden received some money for Christmas, and it's uh, so grandparents that send money. Thank you. Keep doing that. Uh, it helps it Helps parents really be able to say no to the toy store and let them go. But so we go to uh, we go to the toy store, and uh, after pursuing the aisles for some time and perusing the aisles for some time, he, he finally makes a decision. I mean, it's a tough decision. He finally makes a choice. And when he makes this choice, uh, he loves this toy so much that he is, um, he, I mean, he's ecstatic. So I, I remember taking a picture. He was so ecstatic that I took a picture of him and, uh, this is him. Caden, Caden was too. And this, this, this is a toy helicopter. This toy helicopter is like, I mean, it's like huge and he's a little guy. So we're at, we're at Cole's there and he, He walks all the way through the aisle with this giant helicopter like this. He goes up to the aisle, puts it on. You know, out of the store, he walks all the way out. We're we're almost getting hit by, you know, the Christmas traffic going across the street because he's carrying this big toy. He doesn't want anyone else to have a piece of that toy. He doesn't want anyone else to touch it because for the moment, it's bringing him this great joy, right? But this is how often uh, Jesus becomes to us. Because you know where that toy is now? The toy is sitting on a shelf, and we need to give it away because no one ever plays with it anymore. And this is how Jesus becomes to us because we clench onto him with such zeal at seasons in our life, and then grace becomes stale to us. It becomes given. Oh, yeah, it's in, the, it's in the room in there. I got it. It's on the shelf. I know where grace is if I need it. And it becomes like that to us. And here, in, here lies our issue, church, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today, uh, is what do we do? When we're supposed to experience joy and we're not experiencing it, what do we do? And the diagnostic question that we ask ourselves when we're in this place is what's going on inside of me when I'm not experiencing that joy that the scriptures are talking about? That one that makes everything else taste uh, impalatable. What's going on inside of me? I think Jonathan Edwards probably asked this question a lot. <clears throat> Because he had so much to say about how the believer experiences joy. How his affections grab onto the grace of God and what that looks like in everyday life. He wrote a book called A Treatise on Religious Affections. And this is a quote from it. The joy and spiritual delight and pleasure of the saints has its first foundation, not in any consideration or conception of their interest in divine things, But it primarily consists in the sweet entertainment their minds have in view of the contemplation of the divine and holy beauty of these things as they are in themselves. So what's he saying right there? The first look is simply at God and not their interest in God. See, there's a difference there. The first look is at God, not their interest in God. He goes on to say this, and this is indeed the very main difference between the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint. The former, the joy of the hypocrite, rejoices in himself. Self is the first foundation of his joy. The latter rejoices in God. The hypocrite has his mind pleased and delighted in the first place with his own privilege and the happiness which he supposes he has attained or or shall attain to. And true saints have their mind in the first place inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the glorious and amiable nature of the things of God. And this, this is the spring of all their delights and the cream of all their pleasures. It's the joy of their joy. So what's he saying here? There's two postures to joy. He calls them the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint. I'm gonna call them despairing joy and everlasting joy. And I think the scriptures have a lot to say about this. Uh, so what is everlasting joy? Everlasting joy is what we're after, right? It's the, it's the, it's the spring, it's the water that, that quenches our thirst day in, day out. It's what we're all going after. We want to feel the grace of God in our bones. When we walk, we want to walk with the smile of God upon us. But for some reason, you and I are going to wake up tomorrow morning, and that's be, there's going to be a tension there. There's going to be a gospel robber that comes and tries to take that joy away from us. So everlasting joy is this joy that outlasts the earth. It's not bound by the world, and it's the way the gospel is meant to live inside of us. Those that embrace this type of joy know their need, just like those shepherds knew their need when they received it for the first time. What is despairing joy? It's a joy that can't seem to outlast the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's a joy that just gets gets sucked away day by day. And we keep going back and and trying to fill it up and trying to bolt on Jesus and bolt on the gospel and the grace of God. And it can't seem to to ever get enough. And I think think that this shift in experiencing this despairing joy as a Christian, you know, this joy that's kind of fleeting, we're like, I just wish I could have some more of that. And this everlasting joy is a very subtle shift that we experience. It can be a phone call, it can be reading an email. It can be putting your kids to bed one night and they say something that you don't want to hear. Or it could be not getting them to bed for us, you know. It could be all of these things. It could be lots of different tensions in our life. So the, the dilemma for us, church, the dilemma in our pursuit of joy is a problem of order. What do we go to first? It's a problem of order. Do we try to find... Uh, our joy that something can be, in something that can be manufactured, whether that be even our pursuit of Jesus. Like, am I pursuing Jesus? Am I really following him? Am I really having time in the Word? Am I really spending time in prayer? Because we can subtly try to find our joy in our spiritual disciplines, right? They will let you down every single time, too. Because you know what? You'll realize that you're a sinner as well through those. You can't keep up to what you want to do. Really, the joy of the Lord uh, is, is, it can't be manufactured because it's the residue of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the fruit of the Spirit, it's a gift. So, despairing joy. The first response of, of, of someone that is experiencing despairing joy in their life is this look within ourselves and in our circumstances. And we try to find the freedom and joy that we desire. And we look through the lens of what's going on in life. See what I'm saying? So instead of looking to God first and looking through the lens of what he's done and then looking at our circumstances, we look through the lens of our circumstance. And we can't seem to get where we need to get. And this always, um, <clears throat> this always reveals itself to us in a game time kind of scenario. When we, so I want you to think about in your life, um, some of you won't have to think very long like me. Uh, others, you might have to think a little harder. I want you to think about a time when you've, you've just been caught in sin. Because if this, isn't, if this doesn't apply to real life, then we don't need to be talking about it. I want you to think about a time that you've sinned. And I want you to think about what your the posture of your heart's been. I want you to think about what the people around you are thinking, because that's a lot, what goes through our mind. What, what, are, what are they going to think? or? Or what's going on inside of my heart? How do I feel when this happened? When this person said this to me and, and I flashed back and I said this or, or whatever it would be or I felt like I had to cover up something at work because I didn't want to get fired or, or whatever it would be. Think about what's going on inside of you. The person that's experiencing despairing joy, their first look is within. How can I fix this? God, how can you help me? How can I fix this? And we're asking God to bolt on something to our lives, just a little pick me up, a little shot of grace to get us through. And really, we wanna be the fixer in that situation. But you know what I've realized about God? He won't give it to us. He loves us too much to let us trust ourselves. Thomas Wilcox says this, looking at yourself will make you prideful. Looking at Christ's grace will make you humble. And I think this is why we experience this despair, this disappointment, this angst inside of us. Every time that I experience that in life, you you know what's really going on inside of me? Is I'm experiencing hidden grace. I don't think it's grace, but it's grace. You know what I'm saying? You think, like, this cannot be God's grace right now. God cannot be working all good things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose in the midst of what I'm dealing with right now. But we know the promise is there, but we just are just kind of like, yeah, that cannot be true. But inevitably, every single time it's a hidden grace, something that's revealed that I don't want to be revealed, some type of despair. I mean, our emotions, we talk about this all the time, our emotions are like a dashboard lights on on your car. They tell us what's going on inside of us. And here's what I think. I think that we should expect to experience despair, anxiousness. And really a miserable life when we're trying to find our life in something else. That's the, that's the hidden grace. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a hard, that's a, that's a, that's hard news to hear. But I think it's hidden grace because if God is loving, when we're looking for life in something else, he can't let his children enjoy that. So that's why we experience this emptiness, this, this bitterness inside of us. It's like trying to run my gasoline truck on diesel. It doesn't work, Right? Our lives, when we're trying to find them in something else, shouldn't work. The Israelites—they found themselves in these situations more than a few times. Uh, they knew the promises of God, yet the the experience of joy in their life uh, <clears throat> was lacking. Um, one of the ones that I'm, one of the experiences that I'm thinking of comes from Psalm 37, verses one through four. And if you want to read the rest of this, you can really see the posture of their heart. I'm not going to get into it all today, but. Uh, Psalm 37 is really interesting. It's kind of a dark psalm. And the reason that it's a dark psalm is because, as I've said often, the psalms are like theology being played out in real life. You know, like Paul's theology is just like bam, 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 justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. It's all there. Well, the psalms are the Israelites working it out in real life. And so sometimes they say things that are absolutely ridiculous, the writers of the psalms do, because that's what's going on in their emotions. Psalm 137 is... Looking back uh, and remembering the Babylonian captivity. And here's what uh, the writer of the psalm says By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I'm not going to read the rest of it because it will take us off track today. But how should we sing the song of the Lord? How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Do you find that your happiness and your joy in Jesus come and go? You're in good company. And really the pursuit for us is seeing that we can sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land. Remember I said we're on this journey. We're on this journey toward toward Jesus coming more fully to Him returning, rescuing us, taking us into His presence forever, eradicating the presence of sin, judging the world. We can sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land because we're sojourners. And the best news in the world is that Jesus is with us if we trust in him. We can sing the song of the Lord because we're not looking within ourselves and our circumstances to produce an environment where we can sing the song of the Lord. We first look to the Lord. Everlasting joy first looks to God. So everlasting joy first looks to God and sees that the beauty of the gospel in Jesus Is so good. And then it looks into our circumstances, into our situations of our life through that lens. Of course you can't think that you're righteous when you're looking to yourself first. Instead, you need to see the work of Christ and the rose-colored glasses that we get to see our lives through. The righteousness of Christ imputed to our lives, given to us. We are perfectly righteous when we're in Jesus Christ, lacking nothing. But our temptation... Our temptation is to put one foot uh, that trust in ourselves and one tr- foot that trust in God. And Paul writes a lot about this because Paul was uh, apparently a, a pretty righteous guy from the world's standard. And he says this in Philippians chapter three. But whatever gain I had, meaning by his own righteousness, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So there was no keeping it for myself, There was none of that here. It it had to be counted as loss. It had to be dealt away with. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Everything else is rubbish, waste, manure, useless. The only thing that our righteous deeds apart from Christ are good for is to fertilize our new life in Christ. That's all they're good for. They're good for nothing else. As I said earlier, when we try to add something of ourselves to the gospel to produce something to God and to to show it to him, it negates the whole thing. It has to be in faith through grace alone. That's the only way that we experience this. And I I don't know about you, but for some reason, I've always thought of spiritual maturity in a kind of odd way. I've always thought that spiritual maturity looks like this, that Jesus kind of gets me going, he gives me a new birth, and then the longer that I walk with Jesus, the less that I need him. I kind of wean myself off of grace. And I think a lot of us are tempted to think about that same way, because that's the way that we, that's the way that we think about progress, but really, progress is more neediness. It's looking to God saying, I actually, I'm, I actually think I'm worse than I was yesterday. I know that I'm not, because um, I've always been bad, but it actually feels like I'm a worse person today than I was yesterday. And we see more and more our need of God's grace. So what's our first step, church? It's to look, Psalm 121, to lift our eyes up to the heavens and look to him. To look to him for our help. And Psalm 42, um, you know, why are you downcast, on oh, my soul, when we ask that? What's he say? Hope in God. Don't try to hope in yourself. You'll never find joy there. You're a really, really bad Savior. You're really bad at it. And that's really good because Jesus is really good at it. And trust the Lord in that. So, church, we've got to embrace this life uh, as a sojourner. That, that we're not where we want to be, but we're not where we were. And that's, that's the work of God's grace in our life. And he who began the good work in us will continue to carry it on to completion. And when we look first to God, that's where, we, that's, that's where we get to experience the joy that comes from knowing God, that everlasting joy that doesn't despair, that doesn't leave. And so may you look at him this week. May you look at God this week as beautiful and see yourself through the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, that that, uh, you've done this for us, that you've sent Jesus, that you've saved us, that you have redeemed us, that, that the angels came to declare good news of great joy. And the good news of great joy is that you have come to us in the middle of our sin, that while we were sinning, you died for us. And there's nothing that we can do in all of our life to ever lose that. That our performance... And our obedience in you are not tied to our joy in you. Because those things change, but you never change. So I'm thankful for grace, and I pray that you would blow us away by that reality. That we can't do anything to lose it. Amen.